Turn with me over to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to continue with our ideas of what our obje objectives are for this church. and We've been talking about what it means to encounter Christ, which is the first objective we want everybody to experience. Secondly, to experience community, what it means to really have family in our house. And thirdly, today we're going we're to talk about extending the kingdom. How do we take what we know Jesus has done in us and push it outside? Affect the people that are most close to us. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. The title, title of the message is Extend the Kingdom, Gentili, Nova, DMV, in the world. It says, In gathering them together, speaking of Jesus, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're, you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the, the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Lord, help us. Hear your will today in Jesus' name. Five things I'd like to talk to you about in this passage. One, hearing together. Two, waiting together. Three, being immersed together. Four, comprehending together. And five, witnessing together. Everything about this passage is Jesus trying to get these people to be together, to have a common experience, to say corporately, Remember when? Most of us can have a moment where we have had an encounter with God where he really saved us, touched us in a special way. And you can remember when. But there are very few people that ever hang with one another long enough that they develop a history of saying, we experienced this together spiritually. Remember when? This was one of those moments. I want you to experience this together. This will not be an individual thing. It's going to be a corporate thing. So he said, in gathering them together, could he have poured out the Holy Spirit on each of them individually as they lived in their own homes? Sure. But the goal was not for everybody to experience it as an individual. The goal was for everybody to experience it as one, as a people. And so he, he called them together. And he said, I have something to tell you. And there's something about hearing together that allows us to be on the same page much more than just hearing things individually. Whenever something happens in our country of national import, most of you who have been around here long enough know Pastor Brett is probably going to address it at some level. And you come in with some degree of anticipation. What's he going to say today? Oh, this is going to be something right here. Half people going to be mad at him, half going to be happy. I don't know which one I'm going to be, but it's going to be interesting. There's a sense that we're going to hear something together. And though you might want to have a personal appointment with me to pick my brain about how in the world I interpret my life through Scripture, there's something of a sense that, wow, this congregation believes that there ought to be a corporate mindset that is not clonish in its orientation. 
Meaning nobody, not everybody's going to think the same. But we are in unity. You can be very diverse. In fact, you should be very diverse if you're unified with somebody. And that unity allows us to think together on the same value system and do things together we never could do on our own. And so he says, I want you to come together because I got something to share with you. And this is why Sunday morning is so important because we need to hear together. And being together is, is substantive, y'all. I mean, I, I get it that you got a lot of friends on Facebook, but they ain't your friends. I mean, a few are, but the, the ones that really are, are. And you can probably count those on one or two hands. Boy, if you got, if you got, some, if you got five friends, you are, ex- I mean, real friends, you are wealthy. You are rich. People who love you, care for you, deal with all of your issues, like you when you are unlikable. Those are friends. You got five of those? (sighs) Hold on. Don't let those people go because you probably will never find five more. That's how messed up you are. They've already dealt with you. They know you. It's not unknowable anymore. And so they realize, eh, I know this flaw. Okay, I can deal with that. Somebody else is going to have to get used to it. And they may not want to. Stick with what you got. About as good as it's going to get. I'm, I'm telling you, about as good as it's going to get. But it can get better in that environment. But it probably will not get better if you go someplace else and dispose of the relationships you have because you're tired of it. And you just want to start someplace else because the problem is generally not the people you don't like. The problem is that you don't like them. Meaning the problem is you. And when you go to another relationship, you necessarily take you. So you're taking the problem with you. So you might as well work it out with the people you got. Because you're going to be in the same position five years from now that you are now. Trying to figure out how can I do, how can I find another friend? Together. Let's hear things together, Jesus said. And gathering them, he wanted to minister something to them. And he said, I'm doing something. This is going to be special. Gathering them together, he said, I don't want you to go anyplace. I know you're excited about this opportunity to minister this message to a whole bunch of people who, who desperately need what, what, needs, what, 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 what you know, meaning I've risen from the dead and nobody's ever by themselves risen from the dead. I mean, other people have raised people from the dead, but nobody by themselves because everybody was worthy of dying. Jesus was never worthy of dying, so he rose himself from the dead. And as a result, gosh, he appeared to the disciples and it was wild and, and they were so excited. Can, I mean, these men had given their life for this moment. They wanted to get out there and tell somebody. He said, don't go. Stay here in Jerusalem. Stay right here. And wait for what the Father has promised. Because not many days from now, you're going to experience something that's going to change your life. Now, they had already experienced a born-again experience. That happened on the day Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared in the room in which they had locked themselves for fear of being taken captive and crucified just like Christ was by the ruling and governing authorities. And Jesus just appeared in the room. And and, and they were shocked because the last time they'd seen him, he was dead. And he shows up in the room, and, 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 and they all go, ah, it's a ghost. And he says, peace, be still, which in our vernacular would be chill. Just chill, it's me, it's me. And he showed him his hands and his side, and he, he says, the next thing to do, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, he could have chosen any imagery he desired. This was, this was an iconic moment, and he chose to, whew, 
on them. Why? Well, I think it was, was kind of hearkening back to a moment when God did it before. Created Adam, Genesis 2, from the dust of the earth, and it says he, into him the breath of life. And man became a living being. So Jesus was now giving breath to people who were dead in their trespasses and sins and resurrecting them spiritually. That was a born-again experience, we believe. This experience was going to be different. That prior experience allowed them to be right with God. This experience with the Holy Spirit was going to now allow them to help other people get right with God. Oh, I'm going to change who you are. I'm going to make you a witness for me. Not only are you going to be right with the Father, but you're going to now help other people get right from the Father, with the Father. So they, and, and, and by doing so, they will see you on the inside of me. You will be so enveloped with the Holy Spirit. It's going to be amazing. But he said, I want you to wait. Now, the waiting took 10 days. 10 days. So Jesus stayed with the disciples from the day he rose from the dead for 40 days later. The day of Pentecost was 50 days. So between the Passover when Jesus was crucified and Pentecost was 50 days. And in Greek, they named it 50. Penta, that's a, the Greek term for 50. And, and so they knew it was 50 days long. It was originally called the, the Feast of First Fruits in the Old Testament. But they just said, well, it's 50 days between, so we'll just call it that. So everybody knows when to show up so nobody forgets. Put it on the calendar. 50 days after Passover, show up. And so they knew exactly how long it would take for them to come to Jerusalem, a feast they had to attend, and when they needed to be in Jerusalem again for the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days. Though they didn't know what was going to happen, God was about to give them a a different kind of harvest on Pentecost. This was the feasts of first fruits, meaning as God brought in the natural harvest, they were to give an offering to God of their first fruits. So God was about to give them first fruits spiritually. And so 10 days elapsed. They didn't know how long they were to wait, but they knew they were to wait. And waiting doesn't have anything to do with passivity, it has everything to do with activity. Waiting is not just sitting in a room and thinking, okay, I'm just going to be here until. Waiting is, is like this. When you go to a restaurant, what do they call the people that, that bring you the food? Mm-hmm. Yeah, waiters or servers. And those waiters, they, if they're doing nothing, they ain't doing their job. They aren't waiting properly. And waiting means that you are actively saying, Lord, what would you like? How can I serve you? A good waiter will not just bring you your food, but will come back three or four times and say, you doing okay? You need, can, I, can I refresh your coffee? Can I give you another drink? You need some ketchup with that? Anything I can do for you? They are constantly making sure that your desires are their command. This is the kind of waiting he was asking the disciples to do. Lord, help me. What do you want me to do? I want to serve you as best I know how. Your wish is my command. Wait together for the thing which the Father promised. And there's a waiting for this promise that that allows us the privilege of having an expectancy because God promised. He fulfills all of his promises. There's nothing he he doesn't do that he didn't say. He does it all. If he said it, he's going to do it. And Jesus said from John 13 all the way through John 16, 
And this was basically a very long diatribe on who he was going to, to send and how he was going to position himself in the future, meaning the next four days, with respect to the cross and how he was not going to be with them and what they needed to really expect was going to happen. And he says that I'm going to leave and, 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 and it's better that I go because then the Father will, will send, send the Comforter. Now who in their right mind, without an understanding of who the Comforter would be, would think that it was ever a good idea if Jesus was your personal pastor for him to go? In whose universe is that a good idea? You need to stay. You are the best human being who's ever been. But you're God. Well, of course you're there. Yeah, all of that together, that's the reason you need to stay. Because we are, you see how we've done. We've messed up the entire planet. You can make it better. You've seen how I've done. My life's a wreck. You've helped me. You must stay. That's the only way this thing's going to get right. He said, no, it's better that I go. They couldn't figure that out because they didn't understand the presence of the Holy Spirit with the power of redemption and the power to help people become what they needed to be in order to advance this gospel would then be multiplied in a group of people rather than just depending upon Jesus to make it happen. While he was in a physical body, he was in one place at one time. Yet the Holy Spirit could be multiplied in every believer around the world and Christ could be manifested in the same power and effectiveness in that person as, when, as if Jesus were here. That's the intent. What are you to be when you receive this Holy Spirit? My witness, meaning the evidence that I am actually alive. And how do we evidence that? Though the theology is important, we got to talk about them. But remember, Jesus taught them theology for the 40 days after he rose from the dead. That was the entire reason he hung out with them, to help them understand what the Old Testament had to say about him, what Isaiah meant, what Job meant when he said, I, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job was an amazing prophet. He didn't even know probably what he was saying, but he knew the concepts and he was inspired by God. And now we're able to extrapolate exactly what he was talking about. That when redemption happens through the person of Jesus Christ, he's going to come back. Oh, he opened up all these scriptures to them. And it was the greatest conference in the history of man. Spending 40 days with Jesus. Just watching him open that, that's what that passage means. Oh my goodness, that's what, wow! The information was important, but it was not complete without the power. And it's important for you to know the right stuff, which is another reason why you need to read your Bible every day. Please get the information necessary, but information is not enough. Paul said in the book of Thessalonica, he said, Boy, when we come to you, when we came to you, we didn't come in word only. And he was the best theologian on the planet. In fact, the best theologian who has ever been. And he said, I decided I wasn't going to come in word. But in demonstration of the Spirit's power. He said that in Corinthians as well. Paul knew that talking was not enough. He had to demonstrate something. And so Jesus said, I'm going to endue you with power. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And this waiting, you should be expectant that he is coming because God promises. And from 13 of John through 16 of John, those four chapters, he talks about how he's sending the comforter. I'm not leaving you as orphans. You can't come where I am right now, but you will at some point. 
But right now, I'm going to send you somebody. It's going to be amazing. And the Holy Spirit is not junior God now. He's not second class God. He's all God. He's not an it. He's not a power. He's a person that has power. And when he comes, he comes with it all. That's his desire. Now, pastor, if you say he comes with it all, well, why didn't he come with it all when they got born again there in that room when Jesus showed up on the day of of his resurrection? Well, God does certain things sometimes just so we understand how to not be theologically confused. So he separated the two, meaning the the reality of their redemptive benefit that they received on the day of his resurrection and the reality of their empowering to, to be witnesses of who he is to the world. So that we would not get confused with, well, if you save, you got to preach. If you save, you've got to go out and minister. Because that's, that's probably where we go. We judge whether somebody was really right with God by how effective they were at raising the dead. And that would be improper. So he separated the two so that people would understand how important it was singularly to be right with God. And then how important it is for us to to now, after we're right with God, go minister to others so they can be right with God. Can they happen at the same time? Absolutely. But theologically, they are separate events in a person's life. And they need to be distinguished even though they can happen at the same time. There is an expectancy that you need to have that the Holy Spirit wants to do something more in your life than just secure you for heaven. Are you listening to me? He left you here on the planet for a reason. If it was all about just a closer walk with thee, then he should have taken you to heaven right when you got saved. But he didn't. He left you here for what? So you could enjoy the struggle? I mean, think, it's perfect there. There ain't no problems. You don't have to press through nothing. It's great. Forgive my poor English, but I got to be a little eclectic every once in a while. You, You get to... It's wonderful there. Why did he leave you here? So you could extend the kingdom. So you could minister to other people. So we could win college kids who don't know anything about them. That's why he left us here. And so we ought to be expectant. Lord, if you left me here, you got something for me to do. I need the power to make it happen. I'm expecting. And so they were waiting for this because they knew they couldn't go. Even though they wanted to tell somebody, they couldn't go unless they had this endowment of power. And what was it? It was an immersion, a corporate immersion. Jesus used the symbology of baptism, talking about John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him. But you're about to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There is an enveloping of the Holy Spirit that is supposed to be normative on every person's life. He shouldn't just be in you. He should be surrounding you. You ought to walk in his presence at all times. He ought to ooze from your pores. People ought to sense this presence. They won't know how to describe it. Some people will call it an aura. Improperly, yes, but don't get mad at them. They don't know what they're talking about. 
They just know that they sense something they ain't ever sensed on anybody they know. What is this about you? Who are you? They begin to ask questions, and you can explain to them further exactly what it is. This is the presence of the Holy Spirit that goes beyond just your your reservation and glory. It's to impact people's lives, immersed completely. Just as if you were taken down in water and brought back up, so you will be completely immersed. That's what the word baptizo in Greek means, to immerse. Completely immersed in the presence and power of Almighty God. And it's supposed to be a corporate experience. Though it happens individually, that when this actually happened to the disciples, it says they were all together in one place in Acts chapter 2, and tongues of fire distributed themselves and came to rest on each one of them, on top of their head. I don't know what that is. I'm not quite sure what that looks like, but I can imagine in the room what was going on because they were waiting. They just didn't know how long they needed to wait. It had been now 10 days. And I imagine they were looking at one uh, at at day eight and nine thinking, how much longer do you think we got to be here? I mean, I'm getting getting hungry. I got to get back to my fishing business and nothing going to happen. I'm tax collecting for Matthew. How long? And all of a sudden, day 10 comes. And they're sitting there, enjoying one another, just chewing the fat about life and what ministry might look like in the future. And somebody sees a tongue of fire and somebody says, what's that? Oh, my goodness. That's wild. You know, you got a tongue on top of your head. Dude, you too. Wow. And then they hear this noise like a violent rushing wind. And they realize, oh, oh. Oh, this is it. This is, this is what we've been, woo! And all of a sudden, stuff starts coming out of their mouth that's never come out of their mouth before. They begin to speak in other languages, languages to which they're not accustomed. They didn't learn what they're speaking. God gives them, gives them this ability, and they're thinking, wow, that's cool. I can't speak any other, I can't even speak Greek or Hebrew very well. But those of you who don't know English, you got C's. You know, you're still trying to work that out. God gives you a brand new language, and it was so intelligible that the people who heard them, because they spilled out into the streets, the people who heard them said, how can we hear these people? who are Galileans speaking in the language to which we were born. And when they say language, they say dialect. Have you ever watched a movie where a, a, a person from, an actor from the United Kingdom is trying to play an American? And they're, they're putting on our accent. But you, can, you listen real carefully. You say, oh, you're not from here. Are you doing a good job? I'm impressed. You're working it really good. Your, your American accent is better than my British. I get it. You're, you're great. But you ain't from here. These people were listening to these Galileans. And Galilee was the country. It wasn't, it wasn't Jerusalem. That's a big city. What is endemic to all country folk? Every place country folk got a twang. Country folk in Italy got an Italian twang. Country folk in Spain got a Spanish twang. They all got this drawl to them that just kind of makes one syllable words three. How do we hear these country folk speaking in the dialect as if they were born where we are? The only way that can happen is if they drunk. They drunk. That's how it is. They drunk. They drunk. Which makes Peter then stand up and say, hold up, hold up, hold up. You're ascribing to us improper conduct. 
We are not drunk because it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. The pouring out upon all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Male and female servants will speak and see dreams and visions. And and old men dreams and visions. He talks about all the things that were prophesied from long ago happening right now. And then he, he, he segues into who Jesus Christ was and how he died for their sin. And after he finished, this, this barely intelligible prophet, now called prophet, Peter, begins to preach in such a way that 3,000 people listened to his message and get saved. Many more heard it and contemplated doing it, but didn't. 3,000 in a 20-minute message get saved. That's more than Jesus impacted in his ministry, who got right more. It doesn't mean that Jesus impacted, didn't impact more people, but not many got right. These people repented in a minute and, and, and now wanted to be what Jesus wanted them to be. Oh, the power of the Holy Spirit was evident because just a month and a half earlier, Peter could not confess that he knew Jesus to a little girl. But now he was standing up and speaking in his name and not just talking. A week later, he saw a guy that he had passed by many times as he went through Jerusalem's gates. A guy who had been lame and and been begging for years, decades, alms, anything he got for me. And one day, I'm sure Peter had passed this guy many times. One one day he just said, this got to stop. Ah, you, You shouldn't be doing this anymore. He said, I don't have any silver or gold today, but I do have something else. What do you have? What do you have? You ought to have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to address issues in people's lives in a supernatural way. What I do have, I give to you. Took him by the hand, pulled him up, said, in the name of Jesus, walk. That's the first miracle Peter had ever done, at least recorded. He may have done some on a short-term mission when he went out with Jesus sometime, I don't know. But that's the first one we got. Wow. Do you know how much he didn't have to say after that about who Jesus was? Everybody was saying, wait a minute, that dude, we know. We know that guy. He, he's been here for, for three decades. We, he begs every day. And it doesn't just say he walked. It says he leapt and danced in the temple. So you, it's supernatural. He didn't have to wait until his legs got a little unwobbly. He began to do a jig immediately. I don't know if he was nay-naying or what, but he was doing it. <laughs> what do you have? You're intended to have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you should have so that you can address issues. And I... I've seen people healed. I've seen legs grow out. I've seen, I've seen a lot of miracles in my life, but I haven't seen it as consistent, consistently as I would like. And so I am doing what Paul said do, more than I ever have in my life. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14, eagerly. I am saying, Lord, I need some more accompaniment to my message. I need some evidence. I need some power to witness that you are alive that, that standard operating procedure says is supernatural. I need that. So I'm seeking him for it every day because it's for us. 
That's what this is. The power to be his witness. Immersed in it. And then they comprehended some things together. See, the disciples couldn't figure it out. So they said, okay, you're going to send this power. Got it, got it. But, but does that mean you're finally going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, like we left our jobs to be a part of your cabinet. I'm looking to be chief of staff now, Peter said. I made it up. Some people wanted to be Secretary of Defense. I'm looking for a job. When does this Messianic Kingdom stuff start? That's what I want to know. When are you going to deal with Herod? When are you going to deal with Rome? When are you going to have this kingdom that has unparalleled peace and prosperity, that does not have any borders, and whose kingdom, the the, the increase of it, never stops? When does that happen? He said, huh. Well, I don't know. And it's not for you to know. Now, he may have known, but he wasn't going to tell them. But he did say, it's a time that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And it's not for you to know. But what you do need to know is that power is going to come on you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. Chantilly, DMV, America, every place else. You're going to be my witnesses like that. Now, when you have expectation about what it means to be saved and what God wants to do with you whenever he says he's going to come to you in power, we all have a script that he'd like to follow, that we'd like him to follow, better said. We want him to do some things for us. Lord, I need you to fix this. I need you to help here. I need you to attend to this need. And, 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 and this will help me a lot. So if you can follow my agenda... We're good. We're real good. But sometimes he bypasses that and gives you what you need, but you didn't know you needed what he's going to give you. But you needed that more than you needed what you desired. Because when you get what he gives you, which is what you need, then everything you desire gets put in the proper perspective and all those issues get addressed. But if he gives you what you want rather than what you need, you may get that fixed, but you won't get what you need to deal with larger issues. Well, what about that passage, Pastor, in Psalm 34? It says he gives you the desires of your heart. What about that? I got some desires I need fulfilled. Well, you're reading that all wrong. You think he's going to give you what you want. What he's saying is, I'm going to give you desires so you can want the right thing. I'm going to give you the desires that your heart should want. And then you'll desire what I want. It's like all the people who look at what Jesus said in John 14. Ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. Oh, wow. That's a blank check right there, Pastor, isn't it? Blank check. Anything I ask for, right? No. Anything under the authority of his will, which means that your requests have been filtered through scripture so that now you only want what he wants. And if you only want what he wants, why wouldn't he give it to you? So you're not going to ask for anything he doesn't want. Comes under the authority of who he is. And so when we talk about, Lord, at this time, are you going to give me my cabinet position? What do you do? How do you respond when God intentionally disappoints you? You throw in the towel and say, I ain't going to do this no more. I'm done. I am through. 
I mean, there, there are so many things I thought I, this Christianity was supposed to be for me, and I haven't received one of them. All I, it just seems like more struggle and more pain. Yes. Yes. Welcome to Christianity. Yes. Did not somebody tell you that the first thing you're supposed to do when you say, yes, Lord, is pick up your cross? Didn't they tell you that in order to save your life, you've got to lose it? In order to find it, you've got to let it go? Didn't they? Everything is about sacrifice. And it's pri- you're so disappointed because primarily you think you're okay. And you're a mess. You think you're fine and you just need a few adjustments here or there. Just a little course correction, one degree to the left. You needed a 180. You were going completely wrong. You needed to turn about face and do that. But we didn't think we needed that much adjustment. And what you need to do is live long enough to be grateful he didn't answer your prayer. Then you'll worship. You'll worship and say, okay, I need to learn how to pray better. I, it took me five years on some things. I did, but I live back. Thank you, Jesus. I was stupid. I was an idiot. I asked for the wrong stuff. I get it now. I get it. I get it. <laughs> As I close, who would have thought that it was the best idea for a pastor to buy a water park? Who would have thought that was a good idea? In fact, when I bought it, everybody said, that's stupid. What you, you bought a what? You bought a what? All the people in my church, I came out with a key one day and said, we bought some property. They went, you bought a water park? We bought a water park with church money. You bought a water park with church money. Why would a pastor? Who is this guy? God told me. God told me. I know it sounded stupid, but God told me. And I didn't do it on my own. I went to all the leadership, but I knew that if I tried to get the consensus of the church, they'd go stupid. We're not, we're not involved. And so I had to surprise them on this one. Had to surprise them. And just say, follow me. I think, I think this is a good idea. Oh, I lost so much leadership equity in this. And it wasn't until we actually established something where people said, eh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, on 28, cars passing by, sign. Oh, pastor, my handsome. My handsome. And that was when we had lights at every intersection. And there were 28,000 cars that passed by, and that was good. But then they took away all the lights and put interchanges. Now 95,000 cars pass by. Do you know how much we are the envy of everybody? Because we've got the only sign on 28. Oh, that pastor's really smart. He's got a forward-thinking mind. He sees like 10 years in advance. He's just so amazing. No, I'm still stupid. I'm still stupid. I just did what God said. My point is this. I had been disappointed so many times thinking that God really was leaving me out of the wilderness of ecclesiastical progress because all my other friends had church buildings. And we had been in existence for 25 years and never had one. And I, was, I wasn't mad at God. I just thought, Lord, really? Why didn't you give us that piece and that piece and that piece? I wanted that and that and that and that and that. And then I even went out and bought a piece only to have to resell it because it wasn't right. Y'all weren't here. I'm telling you. I just lift my hands and think, Lord, thank you for not answering all my prayers about property that I thought was right that was all wrong. What do you do when God intentionally says no?
What's going to happen, though, is you're going to be filled with power. And you're going to be my witnesses. And there is a witnessing together. A witnessing together. You're going to be my witnesses when, this, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And he's going to endue you with the, the power that is going to allow you to now see other people get right, not just with word, although your words are going to be impacted by this power, but with deeds. Miracles are going to flow through your hands. You're going to have words of knowledge and wisdom about people. You're going to, you're going to prophesy People are going to be gifted in certain ways. It's going to be enormously productive because you're going to have signs and wonders that accompany the preaching of the word. You're going to find yourself with, with like glove, hand in glove, dovetailing with power in your life. And he said it's going to impact Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. May I say that we are a direct result of the power that came upon these men and women. We are at the, at the end of the earth from them. About as far away in time as you can get, are we not? In fact, you can't get any further away in time than we are right now from them. We're at the end. Proximity with respect to miles, eh, you probably have to go all the way to Hawaii to get the furthest away from Jerusalem. But they reached us because they had power. Who are you going to reach? Who are you going to reach? What do you have to give? I beg you, if you have not received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, long for it. Wait actively. What does it look like to wait actively? At the end of the service, we'll have some people down here who can pray with you about how you can receive this the power to be the witness of Christ beyond just being a son or daughter of God. And when you get it, it changes your life. Changes your life. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking for your grace upon these people that we as a people can be a more credible witness of who you are in your resurrection power.